is Michael Bay uh, not an artist? Is he not a genius? <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to the 17th episode of our Agatha Christie reread. And today we're going to be discussing Three Act Tragedy, also known as Murder in Three Acts, that was originally published in 1934. Again, it was a very prolific year for Agatha Christie. My name is Bina007. I'm going to be your host today. I thought originally this was going to be a mini pod because it isn't one of the, you know, the big, great Agatha Christie books. But I'm so delighted to be joined once again by Hannah. Hey, it's uh, Wing Shadow on the Discord. And by Xander. Hello, uh, the Lord Baron. Xander, um, this is the first time you've been reading this. And I feel I missold you because I know you love some Hercule Poirot. And I said, hey, this is a Poirot if you want to jump in on this mini pod. And it turns out, as I was reading it, I was like, oh, no, this is the one where it's actually a Satterthwaite and Poironi kind of just comes in at the end. So how did you find it? Um, what is your lemon cake rating? We'll try and do, listener, the first part of this spoiler free, and then we'll do spoilers after the end credits music. But in general, Xander, how did you find this? And are you still speaking to me? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, he a little Poirot goes a long way, so that that's still fine. He's still there at the end of the day, you know. But no, I actually, I'm glad I did pick this one up and read it too, because this one, um, I don't, something about the way she writes is just, it, it, it pulls me in pretty nicely, you know? And, I, and again, I always have to forget that, yeah, this was published in 34, but I really enjoyed it. No, it's, this one might be my favorite so far. Oh, wow. Oh, I'm really yeah. You read it then. That's great. And it's going to be interesting, listener. We'll talk about it in the spoiler-filled section, but it's one of the rare novels that not only has a different title in the US to the UK, but also has a different ending. So we'll get into which of the endings each of us read. This was a reread for me. Um, Hannah, did you get to listen to the radio? I know you love the radio play versions of these. Did you get to have a yeah. listen? Or I realize I don't think I've ever gotten all the way through this oh. one. I think I like have always put it on and right as I'm going to bed and falling asleep to it. I was like, oh, I don't know if I know how this ends when I was listening to it, but uh, yeah, quite enjoyable. And I don't think this one plays fair like the others do. I'm not sure yeah. that it's all there for you to solve. Um, we'll definitely you know, get into like that. that. But, you know, there's little criticisms here and there, but uh, again, a solid one. I kind of like yeah. how it's not a pro row one, but he's still there. Yeah, it's the best of both worlds because we have a new mm -hmm. voice perspective, but you still have Poirot to solve the trickier bits um, with his trademark ingenuity. I like the fact there's no Hastings. <laughs> so well, you, don't get, you don't get the meanest side of Poirot when Hastings isn't there. When we get into the spoiler part, I'll tell you what I really think. Okay, fine. <laughs> okay, so just a bit of preamble, listener, to give you a bit of context. In 1935, this novel became Christie's first novel to sell 10,000 copies in its first year. So she is definitely becoming a real mass market phenomenon. And there's a lot of continuity. You know, we're, we're now on our, what did I say? It was the 17th episode. She's building up a body of work, including lots of short stories that we aren't covering. And there, there are lots of references here to earlier stories. And I think, I hope you'll find this, Sander, as you get through, you find your inner kind of Christie verse. And she does self-refer, which I think is quite fun. So you also, I think, 
feel that she's writing a lot of them or having the ideas brew at the same time and then kind of treats them in a slightly different way or works them out differently. So as with um, Why Didn't They Ask Evans, which we just covered, the Bartholomew runs a sanatorium that he builds in the grounds of his country house. So that seems to be a fashion. Um, and I'm wondering how far the fact that after she had her fugue state, remember when she had her, the end of her unhappy first marriage and sort of disappeared for a week. After that, she had to go to a lot of psychiatrists, like court ordered, in order to retain the custody of her daughter. So I'm wondering if a lot of this commentary on sanatoriums is because of that. We get a reference to Sir Charles and Satisthwaite returning on the blue train, mystery of the blue train. We have Oliver Manders in this one running his car into into a wall to be invited to a house, which is literally the exact same thing that happens in a prior novel or the prior novel. And Mrs. de Rushbridger, if you read her symptoms, has all the symptoms Agatha had when she had her fugue state or whatever happened to her when she disappeared for a week. Anyway, and they also they mention the ABC Railway Guide, which is obviously going to be very important to the next one. So how do you guys feel about this? How do you guys feel about the fact that literally the book before, you have a sanitarium in the grounds of a country house and a character who kind of runs into a wall to be invited inside? Do you think it's a little bit lazy? Am I being too kind by saying, oh, maybe she has an idea and she just tries to kind of work out how to use it in different ways and plays with the idea in several consecutive novels? Uh, there's a couple of like recycled ideas Excuse me, that she has. She definitely does that. Yeah, I mean, I just thought it was so blatant to do it literally from the prior novel to this one. I know, like, there are a couple of novels that have a certain ending. We're going to get to one of them shortly, but they always have a few novels in between. And obviously, the more novels she writes, the harder it is, I guess, to find unusual ideas. But I thought this was really kind of blatant. And it just made me think, oh, maybe she she wrote in her notebooks a certain idea and then, you know, tried two different takes on the same thing. But it's pretty. <laughs> I thought that was just like blatant. She was just like, fuck it, I'm cashing checks, you know? Like, <laughs> is Michael Bay uh, not an artist? Is he not a genius? <laughs> right? Like listener writing and tell us is michael bay indeed a genius i think he's a genius more than an artist but that's another conversation yeah maybe that's the case but uh yeah no she definitely um but maybe it's like um comfort food too in a way like if it ain't mm. broke don't fix it and um it's hard for me to speak on what the day-to-day -day life of people 100 years ago was so maybe this was like something where if you departed too much you'd kind of get shit on. Like, now we want the variety, right? But maybe back then the audiences didn't. They wanted the formula. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe they really did. Maybe it was comforting to them. And I can imagine that being the case in a time where you got, you know, other countries, neighboring years, annexing other countries, neighboring years, and you just came from a war, you're looking right down the barrel of another massive one. Maybe you want the similarities you know maybe you want the predictability of it i think that's true i think agatha christie has always been comfort food and there's something about playing in a sandbox where you know the walls are quite strictly defined but then you can play right. with a different characters a different set of clues and you can have a certain type of very safe fun with it i was just gonna say i think all in the same way kind of how you were saying you know she's kind of on, built up her own universe in her own novels so it Maybe at certain points it's easier to keep it simplistic or a little bit repetitive just to not lose people along the way of telling different stories. Hmm. Well, and if you're a woman back then who's decided to be an author, I think at a certain point, it's like the Bronte sisters get criticized, I think, un really unfairly because 
if you're a woman who's decided to do this profession, it's really typically not for a woman. Uh, you got to make paper. So if if not everyone is, you know, your next crowning jewel, I don't really think you care as much. And I'm not that is not to say that they don't have artistic integrity. But I think oh, there's yeah. a difference between this is my baby and this is my nine to five and I need to make money. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think in a way, there's nothing more invisible in society than a middle-aged woman. By this point, she's 45, but she is a very successful businesswoman. I mean, she's raking in the cash with serializations, with theater adaptations. Um, she's very, very wealthy, and it, this is a commercial endeavor. And the fact that she's churning out three or four books a year at this point, it's, um, yeah. I mean, but uh, but again, if there was never like a gender pay gap for reals, like, and broadly, I would expect it to be back then, too. So... Where a man might be successful with, you know, one book a year, one book every two years, could a woman be, especially a well, woman writing in her does, own name? Yeah, I think we um, we discussed, didn't we, when we were doing, I think it was Murder on the Blue Train or Mystery of the Blue Train, that she had a prior, her first contract was really unfair to her and she definitely right. didn't get benefits. And she kind of did write some of the 1920s books you could tell were a little bit rushed to kind of meet the quota and but by the time she's now writing here for in her new her new contract she's being very handsomely paid and i think in a way people like this become so successful like think of jk rowling or you know people authors who genuinely can just sell books off their name they become almost a category of their own they're almost beyond gender at that point because they're just so like they're just a machine they're so successful it's a brand right. it's not even like a man or a woman at that point i think it is interesting the other thing to point out in this book for context is um it's the first ever mention of council houses and i was trying to think do you guys have council houses in in the united states do you know what we mean by yes, that phrase? Yes and no. Okay. It's, it, yes and no. They're not they're not quite the same thing, but yes, we have okay. them. They oh, are uh, managed under the auspices of a cabinet department called Housing Urban Development, HUD. Okay. Or, or sometimes it's called Section 8 because that's the title on, in our constitution that or our Bill of Rights, I think, that uh, hmm. that, ha okay. that has that provision in it. So this is, I always think Agatha Christie, or she's always said that she's a good chronicler of change in Britain. And obviously after, well, obviously after World War One, lots of people coming back um, from the war, you've got the rise of the Labour Party, the first true left-wing workers' party in England, coming into government and the first government um, provision made to build council houses um, to give to the less well-off members of society. And this was huge. I mean, like the majority of house building between this period and the sort of the 1970s was council housing. Um, and it's interesting because people always think of Agatha Christie as writing these like, you know, country village picture box kind of things. But she does also mention the changing landscape. So I was just interested. The other thing to say before we get into the characters and what happens in this book is that it's one of its lead uh, characters. So Sir Charles Cartwright is a famous theatrical actor. And Agatha Christie grew up going to the theatre, regional theatre with her family. She loved theatre. By this point, um, she has had, you know, her first um, novels put on stage very successfully. She's written standalone uh, mysteries for the stage. So she loved the theatre. So 
the idea I know that in a lot of her novels we always say that when someone's an actor they're always dodgy but she does love actors and loves being around them and you'd think in her real life at 45 she's probably hanging out with a lot of actors and with a lot of theatre people because of her plays being put on so that probably makes sense but anyway to give a little bit of an intro so we meet all the characters we're in a beautiful um, seaside uh, village and there's a very beautiful house on a cliff and the the actor Sir Charles Cartwright um, who is now retired, still very good looking, is hosting a dinner party. And there's a whole bunch of people there, including um, minor local aristocracy, the local vicar and his wife, his best friend, Sir Bartholomew Strange, who's a psychiatrist. You've got Mrs. Cynthia Dakers, who's a famous fashion designer, her husband, who's a horse racer. There's a playwright there, Miss Wills. There's uh, lots of people, uh, including Hercule Poirot. And at this dinner party, Sir Charles makes a whole bunch of martinis, I think, and hands around these cocktails to everyone. And one person, the Reverend Babington, this old, lovely, kindly vicar, has a convulsion and just dies. And everyone thinks, oh, did he just have, you know, a fit? This seems so weird. No one really thinks of it as murder, because why would there be any reason for anyone to kill him? And so they all go about their business thereafter, except... There is a second murder to come, which is very similar to the first and alerts uh, Sir Charles's friend, Mr. Satterthwaite, that maybe there's something to be investigated here. So Mr. Satterthwaite and Egg Littengore, a young woman, very much in the mould of Agatha Christie, bright young women, go off to investigate. Actually, Hercule Poirot isn't very involved in their investigations. They kind of run around collecting clues and investigating and talking to people and bringing back that information to Poirot who as ever with little grey cells sits and thinks and tries to come up with a solution. So that's the setup. Dinner party, um, cocktail served, one person dies. Is it murder? If so, why? And how was the poison introduced to the glass? So I think that's kind of the intro. Who's your favourite character of all the people presented without spoiling it? Um, Xander. I really liked uh, shit, what was his name? He's he's kind of our POV most of the time. Satterthwaite? Uh, yeah, Satterthwaite. Yes, yeah, it's yeah, a horrible name to pronounce as well, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> like yeah. <laughs> um, so I actually, I quite liked him. I don't know why. He was just he was enjoyable to me. Um, I also liked Egg. She was just a, a very fun character and I feel like Agatha Christie had fun writing her. Yeah, I mean, Satterthwaite, I think it, we're meant to like him because he is up here at POV. For the reader, Satterthwaite is described as a dried up little pipkin of a man, a patron of art and drama, a t- determined but pleasant snob, a man of considerable intelligence and a very shrewd observer of people and things. He also has, <laughs> this is classic Agatha Christie being politically incorrect, a womanish strain in his character so that women confide in him but don't take him seriously. In other words, he's always friendzoned. But he's, he is basically our investigator. And then Egg is Lady Mary Littengore, who, uh, sorry, Egg is Hermione Littengore, uh, quote, not beautiful but undeniably attractive with a bounding vitality. Um, and she's really in that tradition of Christie heroines. I think you're right, Xander. Agatha Christie loves writing these characters. Did you like Egg, Hannah? Yeah, a little bit. The one thing that really stuck out to me was like, here you have a a girl, young girl with a, you know, very 
old English name, Hermione, goes by this um, more masculine sounding nickname. So it really, really reminded me of Peril at Endhouse in that way. Yeah, but she that is very much the kind of heroine that, that Agatha Christie likes, right? These women who defy convention and defy gender norms. Um, if you think of the, the previous book, you know, Why Didn't They Ask Evans? Again, it's a woman who is a minor aristocrat <laughs> who initiates a lot of the action. He really is in charge of the action. And although she is Lady Frances, her nickname is Frankie or Frank. So yeah, right. I think there's a lot of kind of gender bending. We're going to have these women who were just still pretty and still feminine, but are out there making the action happen, which I really love. Um, so yeah, I only ask if you like her and it's, it's interesting, Xander, that you do, because I really like her too. But there's an amazing podcast called All About Agatha or All About the Dame. And they did a really thorough reread of all the books and when they got to this novel um the female podcaster who sadly passed away in the midst of them doing this reread it was really sad she's very young and really amazing she hated egg and apparently there are lots of people who don't like egg and find her really arrogant and unpleasant and just pokes her nose in and don't like the fact that she's throwing herself at Sir Charles Cartwright and I don't know I just found that really surprising I was just like hmm <laughs> okay mm. I think it's if you read it contextually or not because at this point in this reread series we've been doing especially because I'm new to Agatha Christie like I'm I'm constantly reminding myself of when it was published because of at times how modern it seems how, how I've said before you know, because mm. you have this young lady she wrote, and she, she's fiery. She says what's on her mind. Um, she goes by a goofy na- nickname. Um, at the same time, she's calling people bitch and boob and, you know. <laughs> so in a modern context, it, it does come off weird when it should be more relatable in the terms of, a say, a woman in her 20s in the nineteen mid-1930s, whereas, like, a woman in her mid 20s at that time might see it more of a relatable character whereas Agatha Christie kind of even though she is from an older generation she sees that change in women you know sees that I don't know growth and um, I don't know courage to be as as loud and present as men yeah I love the fact that she lets she lets Egg be like call I guess it's Angela Sutcliffe so Egg Litton Gore Reader is thinks she's in love with Sir Charles Cartwright, who is the retired actor who's much, much older than her, but very sophisticated. So think of a young 25-year-old girl falling for a George Clooney type, I think, is what we're we're meant to think. We're also meant to think he's a little bit pompous. He likes, you know, he likes an audience. He likes a change of part. Um, you know, so he is a bit bit of a pompous old guy, but she really likes him. He's got an old friend who's also an actress, but is middle-aged, called Angela Sutcliffe who is also at the dinner party, described as tall, grey-haired woman with a mischievous mouth and fine eyes. So pretty, but of her age. And Egg just calls her a bitch. She's just out and out jealous of her and suspects the Charles of having had like many affairs. And she's like, oh, she's a bitch. I just wish she would die. And I was just like, it's so real and it's so true. It's so how, you know, how I would react like in my heart of hearts if I were in my 20s fancying someone and some sophisticated older woman came by. I mean, I was just kind of, I was a little bit, you go girl. Like you go Agatha, like calling people a bitch. I thought it's hilarious. <laughs> What's funny about uh, her character to me is she, and um, I don't know if this has any basis in like reality um, of maybe them growing up on these stories, but she reminds me a little bit 
uh, at least the portrayals of her that I've seen in various medium um, of uh, Princess Margaret. Yes, yes. Elizabeth the second sister, right. where yeah. you know you have you have one war, one foot in the very feminine aristocracy and one foot out, and you're sort of carving your own path and um, maybe accused of being a little wild in mm. in ways. Um, and you know who that really applies to is Frankie in the story that we just did. I found myself, uh, especially when we were reading End House, really envisioning the actress uh, from the first couple seasons of The Crown mm. in that she in that part. Um, yeah. So if any of you want to know what we're talking about, go watch The Crown seasons one and two. Um, so and yeah. so maybe maybe some of that is uh, potentially. As a young woman, she was influenced by these stories. Uh, you mm. know, I'm not going to say that definitively is the case, but perhaps there's something to that. Yeah, she seemed kind of like that will of a wisp where you're trying to pin her down in, the, in her younger years and she just can't be pinned down. I do wonder if Princess Margaret was an Agatha Christie fan. I know that the current Queen Camilla is a great reader, an avid reader, and she's an Agatha Christie fan. So um, I wonder if there's any influences there. How did you guys find um, the character of Anthony Astor, the playwright, a.k.a. Miss Wills? If you're talking about gender bending and women who are professional and carving a career and putting on different gender roles or appropriating different gender roles because society won't let them be women. That's an interesting one, right? A female playwright who was a social critic writing social satires. Um, she's described really unflatteringly, tall and thin with a receding chin, dressed in exceedingly limp chiffon, looks like a, quote, inefficient nursery governess, but really intelligent and really observant and is very successful as a playwright, you know? <laughs> this was one of those things where I felt like Agatha Christie was giving the middle finger to her peers that aren't brave enough to publish under their exactly. own names. Exactly. Oh, really? I was thinking something yeah, similar. I really, yeah. Wow. I, to me, it seemed like a dig at people who didn't have the balls to publish as a woman. Oh, so she's being bitchy about older, the older rival women, and she's being bitchy about the author. Or I maybe two, two people that back women into a corner where they feel like they have to do that to be successful see i interpret it the other way that you know agatha christie we know she was very vain and very pretty when she was young but by the age of 45 like many of us including myself a little bit too fond of the creamy cakes and put on a lot of weight and was i think probably quite frumpy and a bit like miss wills anthony astor when she was going to these fancy schmancy dinner parties and stuff always felt a little bit awkward that people were maybe judging her as not being as glamorous as the other like royals and actresses and people who were there. So I thought this was maybe her dig at people who maybe underestimate her and think, oh, who's this frumpy, like middle-aged, middle-class woman over here? Why is she here? But secretly, she's observing them all as characters to use in future books. And she knows very well her own worth and that she's earning a whole bunch of money. Um, so I, I actually took it the other way, that at, Miss Wills was a bit more like Agatha and that all the people who judge her harshly end up looking foolish because actually she's really clever. Like she's the only one who notices a particular clue later on. So, See, and that's, that's so funny that we all have three different similar <laughs> ideas of it, but like very different reasonings. Because, and I'm thinking now when you both were talking, this might be my whole reasoning. I kind of like this book most so far is um, 
it seems like in every single character, she puts a bit of herself. She's more comfortable mm-hmm. putting herself into her own character. So you can see it in, you know, the young egg, or you can see it in the older playwright, or you can even see it in, you know, our POV and just the the fun of having it or, you know. Yeah. Maybe it's that confidence, you know, she's, you know, over 10 years in now, nearly 15 years into being a professional author, and she just feels completely comfortable with her craft and the ability to play with different characters and different aspects of herself. I, I love it. I really do love it. Although I think maybe she didn't put herself into the shifty ex-horse racer, Captain Dacres, maybe. Um but even no. the small characters, I love how she describes them, like Mrs. Babington. Um, I really hope I aspire to live up to this description. A big, untidy woman, full of energy and likely to be free of petty mindedness. And you can kind of just picture in that one line, this big, warm, kind of maybe quite lousy woman. who's just full of fun and, and just really warm hearted and not prejudicial at all. And like, I just I mean, I love you prowled the- around with me in L.A. before. Do you not think that's like me? <laughs> I mean, honestly, I aspire to be you. So, like, we can both aspire to me, Mrs. Babington. I just think she's awesome. That's a lovely description. A big disheveled woman. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> full of joy. But full, but full of energy and full of vitality and, you know, great fun to be around. I just, I love it. Um, how do we feel about Oliver Manders? So, reader, Egg, Egg Litton Gore is in love with Sir Charles uh, Cartwright, but there is a younger, good looking man who is another potential suitor called Oliver Manders, a handsome 25 year old described as sleek. Um, unfortunately, this is where we're going to get our typical bit of Agatha Christie anti Semitism. He's described as foreign, un English. At one point, Egg literally says to him, Oliver, you slippery Shylock. Um, yeah, so that's pretty unpleasant to read. He works for his uncle in the city in financial services. He wants to be rich, but he's also a communist. Hilarious. Um, but he's good looking. And I think we're meant to see that he is actually a good guy. And maybe that undercuts the anti-Semitism. But I mean, that is if you want to look at where the non the regressive stuff is, it's stuff like this character. But how did you find him? Did you think he was fleshed out? I always feel with Oliver, I don't know. I, ne- I never quite feel that he's as well fleshed out as a potential love interest. But what do you guys think? He's as shallow as a late 90s teen drama jock character. <laughs> like that's oh. that's the level I felt he was right now because that's all I could ever really see. <laughs> This is why I love this reread because you just, it, that just, you just picturing that. Devin Sawa like <laughs> driving his car into a cave. <laughs> he just hits the nail on the head. I would never would have come up with that description. Sounds of it is oh. so perfect. Like like, so like the older brother in Boy Meets World. Xander is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> He's the Josh Brolin in Goonies. Uh, yeah, God. there you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um. Oh. Yeah, I well, love that. I now, really want to reread it now with that in my mind. That's yeah, hysterical. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I the name Oliver Manders is fun to say, but it also uh, when they kept saying it in the radio play, I'm like Ollivanders. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. I had I had a hard time not connecting those dots. Uh, yeah, I like I like that name though, Oliver Manders. It's just a fun. It's well, a fun like name. It. One more um, name shy of Ali. I think I think he's supposed to be kind of a red herring in some ways. Um, yeah, and I kind of think the anti-Semitism is used as a red herring as well. As well, 
this idea of here's this foreign English guy and like she knows that the readers are probably gonna think oh maybe he's a wrong one um for that reason but then she kind of undercuts it so that is I do cool. think he's quite brave though to speak his truth yeah he's, I do like that part of his character of like well you know I say what I say there's a really lovely bit at the end where Poirot where eggs become engaged to Sir Charles Cartwright and Poirot says I wish you happiness, but not the kind of the temporary superficial happiness, but happiness that endures and is built upon a rock. I thought that was really lovely. This idea that true enduring happiness is quieter and more sturdy and maybe a bit less kind of obviously passionate and romantic. But yeah, I actually went to a lecture the other night about um, so it's called Romeo and Juliet Seven Lessons in Love. And it was a lecture breaking down Romeo and Juliet and how you can learn about love from Romeo and Juliet. And the, the guy who's giving the lecture started by, <laughs> by saying, like, I know this might sound very weird, but hang in there with me. Like, and, and that's what he talked about is like the Greek, uh, the ancient Greek, like categories for love. So like mania, pragma, eros and how. Uh, Romeo and Juliet is an example of manic love, but pragmatic love is the one that's going to sustain you. It's yeah. a very interesting lecture. It's the difference between whirlwind love and a marriage, I think, in some respects. Um, but yeah, Agatha Christie, wise woman in the in the guise of Hercule Poirot, um, someone who had married um, or made an unsuitable marriage. It's kind of interesting when they talk about Egg's mum, Lady Mary Lytton Gore, um, they say she made a really bad marriage to a very attractive but unsuitable guy and you know she's left a sort of poor widow um and i think that kind of really maybe sums up how agatha christie felt about her own first marriage that she married this very handsome reckless guy that the family didn't approve of and it was miserable and actually she kind of learned her lesson of that's not maybe how to contract a marriage um anything else to say about the characters before i get into the reviews i will say uh extremely minor character but the maid of um uh, uh, Mulray, miss Mulray. yes okay so in the radio play the actress is a genius just paints this very classic british housekeeper uh she has kind of the uh, like a northumbrian um accent and it's just a it's a small but enduring performance can't remember the lady's name but kudos to her yeah i'm sure she's not with us anymore the the actress but uh she brilliant job brilliant work and it is very just warm um practical character that you get you know and i i always like the the characters in, in christy's books are always like the they remind me of us they remind me of like here's the honest truth and you can trust them kind of thing like but she's another example of the middle-aged woman who's kind of lost her looks if she ever had them who's just totally overlooked like whenever you hear sir charles cartwright or sir bartholomew strange or mr satterwhite talk about her they're so dismissive you know they say she's quote efficiency personified People gossip about her and Sir Charles Cartwright, but they kind of scoff at that. Like, how could she possibly have, you know, a personal life? How could she possibly have family? She's just all well, kind of she's plain up. old and ugly. What, what yeah, she, like how could she have feelings? And again, I think it's Agatha Christie kind of subverting the readers of it of the times' expectations. Like they're not going to expe- expect her to have strong feelings, which she does. And I think it's yeah, it's like she's creating the stock character, but actually, then we discover there's more to her. So. 
I think Miss Milroy is really interesting in some respects. Um, I do like the description of her as efficiency personified. I don't know. I thought it was kind of adorable. Yeah. Yeah. And we all need people like that, right? I mean, they're like, let's not overlook the people who just get, get shit done. I think it's really funny, though, when she offers to have dinner with him. She was like, you don't want 13 at dinner. Obviously, I'm not superstitious, but some people are ridiculous. Right. Just we'll see. That. And that's, that's another beautiful part of uh, Christie's writing is like that joke right there. Because, however, uh, you know, he in his head thinks of it. He was like, oh, and he, she said it in, a, in such a way that she couldn't care less or whatever. You know, I don't know if that this is quite the same when you read the book, but in the radio play, at the very beginning, there's this scene with, um, I think it's it's either Sir Charles or Sathersway and Perot are sitting on the beach and they're having a conversation and all through the background, it's before Perot really gets involved in all this. Um, so the, the, the cleric has died and they're now out and abroad uh, sitting on the beach and in the background, throughout this whole conversation, there's this little boy going, mommy, come play with me, mommy. And I swear to God, the first time I read this, and even and even this time, I was like, "Oh shit, man! Like that that mom is dead!" Like, and that little boy, like she's laying there, and it looks like she's sunbathing. We're gonna find out she's dead, and it's gonna be like, you know, like murder really is following Perot around. Like I was, I thought it was gonna take a real dark turn for a minute. That's so like, that's fucked up, and then it's and just. It's just reflecting on where he's at in life. And I'm like, oh, thank God. Thank Jesus. <laughs> I love it. I it's love really creepy in the radio play, though. There, there's so much tension right there. Like, very suspense thriller level, like, until it moves on. You're just like, oh, fuck. Well, I'm happy to say this book was very well received. Actually, I don't know if I... I think I was kind of like... I didn't have strong memories of this at all. I'd completely forgotten who did it. Um, but I really enjoyed reading it. At the time, people really loved it. The Times Literary Supplement Review. Very few readers will guess the murderer before Hercule Poirot reveals the secret. Um, New York Times Book Review. Most unusual, if not positively unique in the animal annals of crime, uh, the motive of the murder. Um, which I kind of agree, actually. I'm not sure I've ever read a crime with this particular motive. Um, let's see what else is there. Um, in The Guardian, Millwood Kennedy, whoever that is, says, um, the ma mechanics of the story are ingenious and plausible. The characters are lifelike and lively. Poirot does not take the stage very often, but when he does, he's in great form. I agree. Um, and then Robert Bernard, who's a contemporary uh, reviewer, says, the social mix here is more artistic and sophisticated than is usual in Christie. Don't know if I agree with that, but anyway. So people like it. So that's cool. Um, there are adaptations. Um, Hannah's already talked about the radio play. There are two televisual ones, both of which are really good, actually. So there's a 1986 television film, which is called Murder in Three Acts. And if you just Google that, plus Peter Ustinov, you will find it. It is an all-star cast. Um, so you can watch it on YouTube, full length, an hour and a half. It has Peter Ustinov as Poirot. It has Tony Curtis as Sir Charles Cartwright, which is amazing. And wow. Emma Sams. So if any of you are Dynasty fans, Fallon Carrington plays Egg Litton Gore, which will probably hint that this is not set in 1934 England. 
<laughs> it's all Americans and it's set in Acapulco. So there must have been some kind of crazy tax break. Um, Satterthwaite isn't mm. in it and it's replaced by Hastings, which is a bit of a shame. But yeah, Tony Curtis is a sort of retired movie star and it's all set in Los Angeles and Acapulco. It's actually really fun. <laughs> like it's it's a bit nuts. And it's there's the character of Oliver Mandis becomes um, uh, an, a Mexican um, actor. He's very good looking and looks like a character out of Miami Vice. It's just really funny. <laughs> Um, and then there's a David Suchet adaptation um, in the Agatha Christie's Poirot series, which is available on ITVX in the UK. I'm guessing you can get it on BritBox in the US. Stars Martin Shaw as Sir Charles Cartwright, Art Malik as Sir Bartholomew Strange. Um, it's a really, really beautifully directed. The, the house they pick in Cornwall is so perfect. It's very faithful to the book. Um, Satterthwaite, again, isn't in it, so Poirot does all the detecting, which is a bit of a shame. But basically, it's very faithful. I, I really, we watched both of them on the same day, which was a bit weird, um, Philip and I. We really, really enjoyed them. So I would say they're different enough that it was it was possible to watch them both on the same day. But, you know, if you want to see Agatha Christie and Acapulco, this is your chance. <laughs> oh, are, we, are we doing spoilers yet? We are now going to do spoilers. So, listener, we hope you really enjoyed and are tempted maybe to pick up um, Murder in Three Acts or Three Act Tragedy. I think you'll figure out that we both, by the, we all three of us, by the sounds of it, really enjoyed it. I'm so glad you did, Sandra, in particular. Um, we're mm. going to leave things there for now. You can tune in next time if you want to for Death in the Clouds, a.k.a. Death in the Air, which will either be a mini pod or maybe a full pod, depending on if anyone else wants to pick it up and read along with me. Um, and then after that, we've got a big one. We've got the ABC Murders. So we hope you really enjoyed that and are tempted to read. If you have already read the book and want to hear what we think about the ending, stay tuned after the end credits music. So, my friends, I want to know which version of the ending you had. So, Xander, in your version of the book, who who did the murder and what was the motive? <clears throat> um, so, the murder was done by um, Sir Charles mm -hmm. um, because he had a wife in the asylum, but he wanted to marry Egg. Oh, okay. Same. So, we have the same murder then. Yeah, but yeah. the... So I think the the difference between the endings, because I was trying to look it up because it didn't seem that big to me. But in my edition, Mr. Satterthwaite says he'll escape. Poro shook his head. He says, no, he will only choose his exit. The slow one before the eyes of the world or the quick one off stage. That's, that's what the he last, said. Yeah, that's, the, that's yeah. all you see. Where I guess in the American published version, which I'm guessing is they're referring to like the 1935 first edition one. Mm. is Poro says that the cops and detectives are outside to take him away and not the suicide suggestion. Mm. Mm. In in the end of the radio play, uh, Satter Sweet responds by saying, gosh, like, if the poison was out for anyone to take, you know, it could have been me, God forbid. And <laughs> Poro is like, you're forgetting a way worse scenario. And Satterthwaite goes, what's that? And Poro goes, it could have been me. And that's how it ends. I know. Oh, yeah, I yeah. That. that was that was the last line of, the, of mine yeah, as well. But, it's such a brilliant line. <laughs> and it's so Poirot. And that's why I love the man. It's so Poirot. I love it so much. And it's wonderful seeing how it's acted in both. Like in the David C. Shade one, 
does it completely like straight. And but Peter Ustinov just does it for last. It's just so brilliant. I would really urge you to watch it. It's just oh, I love I love Poirot so much. <laughs> right, I'm just reading online. Let's see. Here on this bit of online, collectingchristie.com, this novel's difference occurs in the last chapter and focuses on the motive of the killer. Christie's original mass manuscript was used in the UK version, which is generally viewed as a more plausible reason for the criminal. However, Dodmead, the US publisher, actually published the book first, but asked Christie to revise the motive for the US audience because of differences between the laws of the two countries. This variance is preser preserved in future US versions too. Oh, that's weird. So why does he want to get rid of the wife in your version? In our version, it's because she's in an asylum. And in England, you cannot divorce someone who is in an asylum or who is in prison. So why can he not divorce his wife in your version? That was the version I had, that, he, that yeah, they were in the uh, asylum. Huh, I, feel, I feel we need to like... We need to okay, fun. so I imagine there is a version, though, where it, here in America... Um, because we do not, we have a separation between church and state. You can divorce someone for alienation of affection. And there's a lot of different circumstances where you could sue for a divorce without the second party's consent. Um, so that would be a case where you could be granted a divorce if they were permanently institutionalized. You could absolutely be granted a divorce. Mm. Um, okay, so, so I imagine it wouldn't make sense for us readers but i just i already knew that that was a law because there's a uh withering heights is the same way right well see and this is this is where my confusion comes in because my understanding jane Eyre is the same way no because see my understanding was it wasn't because of the divorce uh laws but and like here right here it says in certain american editions poro tells cartwright that doctors and policemen are awaiting him in the next room Cartwright, unable to believe someone as important as himself has failed, tries to prove Poirot a liar and is arrested when he opens the door. So it switches out the, again, suicide suggestion for that, rather than change it for the reasoning of the murder. What year is yours published? Uh, let me double check. I find it amazing there's not a single page of the internet that just straightforwardly says what the, the endings were in each one. You'd think this would be like... Because I can imagine where an American audience would be confused of, like, why the hell can't he just get a divorce? Oh. Um, well, because mine is... Again, like, if you've read Jane Eyre, then you know that that's a thing in Britain. That's how I so, took it. So mine, I can't find the publishing date, but it was published probably in the last 20 or so years. Um, and uh, funnily enough, the publishing company doesn't exist anymore. They're now HarperCollins. But it looks like it is just verbatim the 1934 uh, tragedy act or three act tragedy um, original publishing. Well, that's funny because Harper Collins is the publisher of the radio play version. Interesting. Which is, those, are, those were done in like the 50s, 60s. Hmm. So uh, maybe you've got a version where they go back to it because it's not such a big deal anymore. Or like you should, you could do a quick Google search and be like, oh, that's a law in England if you're confused. But maybe back in the 30s, they were worried that the American audience would be like, well, what the damn hell? Interesting. Well, anyway, I'm going to do some research between now and Murder in the Cloud. So, listener, we will come back to you on what the actual original US one was. Because I think we're both reading. We're all three of us probably in the same one. And there is a different one, which apparently didn't make as much sense. But we'll, we will report back because it's been Google fail. Maybe I need to get on to Bing and chatbot AI and just ask. It's okay. 
We'll uh, put on our Hercule Poirot mustaches and figure this out. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, now I need to know. I just need to know. <laughs> Everyone just keeps saying, like, every single article I click on says, yes, there are differences, but then doesn't really say what they are. It's very frustrating. Mm. It's like there's an original meme on the internet. Anyway, so how did you find the ending? Hannah, you said that you thought it didn't play fair. What What is the issue here? Well, um, I think that uh, I guess if you are like really, really reading between lines, sure, you could be like, oh, it's a secret wife. But I don't think that there's any like straight up evidence where it's like, oh, it's a secret wife. Like at least in Parallel and House, there's like the cocaine things in the mix, you know, um, which is another parallel between the two. These two is the chocolates, the poison chocolates. Um, so she went back to that well pretty quick. Um, yeah, I don't think that you're like, oh, oh, it's a secret wife. You know, like, obviously there is this mysterious character that they're looking, but I don't think the connection is um, hiding in plain sight for you to make in that way. I suppose I was thinking about it as we were doing the non-spoiler version. I was like, I do suppose it plays fair in the sense it the title kind of tells you. Three-act tragedy, theater, actor, like, <laughs> there's not too many dots to connect there. So I suppose yeah. that part of it does play fair. Um but yeah, I don't. I don't think that it's like, oh, this chick that they're looking for is obviously homeboy's wife, and she's in a sanatorium, and he can't get a divorce, and that's why he wants to murder a bunch of people. I don't know if, yeah. if it's all. I'd say like Shutter Island kind of thing. Like, I don't think the first time watching that movie, anyone's like, oh, he's just having a fugue episode, and it's all in his mind. I don't think you do that the first time around until they I mean, want when, you to. When I got to the end, it. I did sort of think, wouldn't it have been easier just to murder the wife? Like, just put the nicotine into her cup of tea. No freaking kidding. I don't think anyone would ask any questions. Yeah, that's so If bizarre. the man who owned the sanatorium, like, was the only person who knew, like, I don't know, falsify documents, get rid of it or something. You could have you could have hired like anybody. You you could have done your whole butler routine there, you know, like some mysterious relation from abroad comes a visitor and then she's dead. Like, I don't know that there would have been a lot of questions asked. So it seems and then and then the motive for the first murder, just being a, a dress rehearsal is so cold and cruel. I love that. It's mm. smart. I'm not going to lie, but it's so like inhumane is this the most psychopathic murder we've had so far it's it definitely the most clinical yeah well and i don't want to i have something to say about it but i don't want to say until we're a little farther into the reread there's I know exactly what you another say. book yeah. <laughs> coming up and i don't want to say for for xander's ears so and i'm glad okay. you know what i'm talking about already that's brilliant I think you know who the murderer is by page five. Because by this point, when you've read 17 Agatha Christie novels, you know that if someone is an actor, they're a shady motherfucker. She doesn't like actors. She thinks they lie. She thinks they can do disguises and stuff. And that, so therefore, the fact that he's going to become a butler and have introduced the poison isn't surprising. Well, I was going to say, I think maybe coming off the heels of End House for me, I was a little too focused on Hermione. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I, I think that's part of it, too, because, I mean, in the first opening, what, two paragraphs, she's already saying how he he's constantly playing characters and what character is he playing today, you know? And then, you know, you introduce Hermione and then your attention is focused on her. Um, yeah. Well, also, we know, too, like murders insinuate themselves in the crimes and Hermione does. So, again, I think I was still like a little Nick shocked and focused on her more than I should have been on Charles. Like they were my three prime suspects, obviously, but um So who did you think did it? 
uh, Zonda when you were reading. Okay, so let me let me say this. I am horrible at mystery novels and whodunits <laughs> because I get swept away like all the characters, and that's obviously the point. Whereas, like, you know, if you give me just Poro's notes, and I sat there and I read all his notes, I'd figure it out the same way he would. But being mm. swept away with, you know, all the talking heads, all the different scenarios going on, you know, because this is, what, a 250-page novel? Not even. So it's mm-hmm. not even long, but, you know, she does kind of... She's very good at, at pushing your head to look the other way. Even when she uses red herrings, like in here, she doesn't use it as a red herring. She uses the red herring to push your attention away from the actual red herring. I don't know if that makes sense. But mm. Just getting swept up in it, so I'm I'm bad in the moment trying to figure it out, but then when it's all laid out, I'm like, okay, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, I don't really read them to detect, I mean, partly because I've already read them. I don't really read them to detect, like, but I do like to, once I know it, to go back and figure out if it made sense. I would, I just read them more for the characters, I think, and more for the fun of the kind of the settings. And Absolutely. I just want to That's see what I'm Poirot here for. I'm here for Poirot just being witty and, you know, I'm here for those one-liners when he's just really arrogant. <laughs> and I'm here for just seeing, you know, these amazing female characters that we get that are so, you know, so full of, so ballsy, basically. And I'm just here for some of the rise social commentary. And I love that the, I lo- there are ones where it is more of a puzzle box, like Murder on the Orient Express, where I, I do love the intricacies of how it's worked out. Actually, it's worth pointing out here that um, this is another one where people always used to praise Agatha Christie because she was a pharmacist for knowing how poisons worked. And this is another one where you really have to know how nicotine poison works, I guess. Um, like, like how poisoning is good. It's on point. So... Yeah. Mm. Anything else you guys want to say about this book? Yeah, he mentions here, uh, I've only failed once before in Belgium before the war. Do we ever find out what the hell he's talking about? Don't know. Can't remember. Right. Maybe we'll, as we, we go further on. Actually, this is interesting, right? Because although he's not in it, we learn a bit more about him. Like, it's really heartbreaking. We learn that he grew up in a really poor family and there were loads of kids. And he kind of went into the police force to sort of try and make something of himself and that the the wealth that he now finds himself in is actually quite alien to him. Although that was quite a few, only a few lines, but quite touching as a bit of backstory. I wonder if that was maybe um, her planting the seed of him having like a Moriarty to his homes, you know? Ooh. The one that got away, but then maybe she never flushed that out. Well, you could argue that she sort of does in Curtain, but it's not related to this, obviously. Yeah, maybe. Maybe that's it. But I I, I've, never, I've never read Curtain. That's his last one, right? Yeah. Ooh. Oh, yeah. my God. Okay. You got, you you are both in for such a treat. Um, <laughs> in general, I do not view Agatha Christie novels as remotely scary, even though death is everywhere. And I can't really cope with horror as a genre in general. But that novel to this day gives me the creeps. I mean, it really gives, it'll give me nightmares. I find it so horrifying. So y'all are in for a treat. (laughs) I think think once you've read it, it may well become one of your all-time favorites, Hannah. Um, Because just knowing the ones you like and the characteristics of them. Ooh, how did I miss that then? Yeah, it's pretty iconic, I have to say. Yeah, now I'm excited. Yeah, but it's going to take like us about like 10 years to get to that, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I'm in for it. I mean, I'm here yeah, for we, it. The three of us are here for the long run. It's not like yeah. we've been yeah. scared away yet. 
Exactly. Yeah, the, only thing, the only thing that could possibly make us put this down would be uh, if we get wins winter, which I don't think is likely to happen anytime soon. So I, I think we do have 10 years. Down if we got wins and winter. <laughs> the same. Cool. Okay. So the next book is Death in the Clouds, aka Death in the Air. That was published in 1935. A closed, a closed mystery set in an aeroplane rather than a train. Rise of plane travel. Shows you that she's living large now because she can afford to go on planes. I mean, that must have been so unusual and so beyond luxurious at the time. Can you imagine? Um, it is a Poirot and Inspector Jack mystery, Xander. I'm not sure if that tempts you in. It is normally seen as minor, but I don't know. I, I kind of don't particularly... Re I remember this and I remember the ending. I don't think of it as particularly ingenious, but um, it is Poirot. It's Poirot all the way through. So. Well, I've never read Poirot this one. single space, I'm in. <laughs> is this going to be like, get these motherfucking clues off this motherfucking plane? Kind of. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, looks like we will be reconvening with uh, with murder in the death in the cloud story. And actually, Hannah, I'm actually going to listen to the radio play this time. I haven't listened to any of them yet, but this one only has one TV adaptation. So I'm going to do the TV adaptation and, and also listen to the radio play for a bit of variety. So there we go. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for thanks for dialing in. I feel we're the kind of the Christie Musketeers, and it and it gives me joy. I like it. We don't often have. Um small group ones that still feel big and i'm so i've been enjoying this one because it's not Absolutely. not that i wouldn't welcome more people but sometimes it gets chaotic and that, and that can be its own bit of fun but this has been uh really nice and mellow but it feels almost back feels to the big, roots yeah already have a lovely lovely rest of the week and weekend boys and girls i love you all both very very much indeed and same many blessings i love you guys i love you guys thank you bye um I just watched, speaking of absurd films set on planes, I just watched Plane with um, Gerard Butler. And I have to say, it was a bunch of fun. It was really just like good old-fashioned silly fun and I really enjoyed it. I would recommend it. Um, Is so that the one where they defy the laws of physics and invert like a Boeing 747? Well, it mostly takes place on an island. In fact, one of the reviews said it should just be called Island because they, they kind of land oh. the plane in a storm and then half the people, the the plane, they land on, it's a bit Tropic Thunder, they land on a little island that's run by drug lords so they get kidnapped and held hostage and then it turns out there's a murderer on the plane but he's a good guy so Gerard Butler the pilot teams up the murderer and they go all Rambo and it's just it's just hilarious it's, it's, oh it's so it's Con Air meets Tropic Thunder yeah Got it. <laughs> meet snakes of a plane without snakes though. um but yeah it's it's really yeah I, I'd recommend it for like a silly silly Friday night sort of fun time so I think the internet's going to break. I mean, certainly the vassals of Kingsgrove Discord server is just going to break if we ever get wins. It's just going to be carnage, carnage on the forums. Well, see, um, the second I know it's dropping, then I am going to have to quit the internet for a while because I don't want any spoilers. Well, as soon as it drops, I'm going to have to just book a week off work. There are oh, like yeah. people that I'm read on reading it until I, I finish it. Yeah, oh, yeah, no I'm... internet, no phone calls. Yeah, I might Just be MIA for a while. <laughs> in my bed with my duvet, read, sleep, read, Well, and sleep, I'm going to have to reread. You know. I'm going to have to reread all the other ones, too, because it's been so fucking long. Oh, I'm not rereading them. I feel that the linear reread just sucked every ounce of reread out of me. Like that forever. <laughs> but um... I was a while back, I was doing like a care by character reread. 
And even that is like a beast. Well, bear in mind, I've done it twice with Vox, right? Because I did the original character reread, which was sort of single digit Vox. And then I did the linear reread. Um, so I feel I'm, I'm a bit rereaded out. Um, for George yeah. R. R. Martin, not for Agatha Christie. That, that is true. Yeah, but you would That's... actually show up to those podcasts having done your homework. And I think all of us all the time. <laughs> That's me. I'm a Sansa. I do my homework. I'm, I'm the classic good little girl. Who, I'd read, I would read my one chapter and write my little thing. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so kind of like on brand for model minority and internalized like, you know, misogyny and racism. Like I, I, I'll just nod and do my homework and... You know, God forbid I ever rebel. Um, there you go. Naively, I really thought Wins would be out by the time we finished that reread. So I really thought so too. I mean, sweet you know. summer children, sweet summer children that we were. I um, really, really did. But I have, I've made my peace with it. I've made my peace with not getting it. I just, you know, George, like I always said, I said, I think in the reread, George gave me this community and these amazing people. It's given me friends like you and you, Xander, and. You know, he's given me so much and he's given me so much richness in reading those first books that it's it's kind of, it's cool. I'm cool with it. That's true. I, I remember you saying that and particularly you said, quote, I've come to a very Zen place about it. And I walked away from that particular cast uh, aspiring to reach that Zen place. And I feel like I've climbed that mountain myself. And now I'm, if it happens, great. If not, I'm not, I'm not waiting for it anymore that I've moved on. Yeah, and I'm with Bean on this one. I, I think I'm the loudest, most broken record about it. George Martin changed our lives in ways he couldn't imagine because of the, you know, community and friendships we've gained. My life wouldn't be the same, you know, without you people. Hell, I wouldn't even be here reading Agatha Christie. I never read Agatha Christie, but now I am and I'm enjoying it. I love that. Oh, there's so much that I wouldn't have read or experienced or TV shows or books that you'll recommend that I just wouldn't either wouldn't have heard of or that would be outside my comfort zone. So I probably wouldn't have done, but was so rewarding and 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 like more fundamentally even than that, just attitudes or ways of looking at things. Like I've said to you all before that the way in which members of this community reacted to things within the reread around sort of issues around um, consent and sexual politics really opened my eyes and made me reconsider my opinions. And I think I'm a much, um, much more thoughtful person about some things because of having those ideas debated in a really safe space, but, you know, in a challenging but safe space, which is kind of the best of both worlds, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. So thank you, George. I just wish he'd like fess up. I wish he'd just say like, you're not going to get it. It's cool. Be happy right. with what you got. And then we'd all just like move on with our lives. I think it's the kind of that like 1% tease that it might just happen. I almost, I almost feel like if he did come out publicly and was like, it's over, it's done. I'm not doing it. He might actually, you know, <laughs> and couple months later be like, I'm fucking doing this. You know what I mean? Like if he didn't. <laughs> He's like, wait, no, I lied. I finished you guys. You know what I mean? And the pressure was off. He might have that inspiration suddenly and actually be able to finish it. So. Mm. But yeah, yeah, I I do I do stand by the fact that I think if we do get it, he's he's writing spring at the same time, and um, they'll come out in quick succession, is what I think. So. <laughs>